This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Later in this episode, you'll hear me talking to Richard Lawson, who is off in France, gave us a true French dispatch from the Cannes Film Festival. But in the meantime, we've got a special guest. I'm so excited to have Nathaniel Rogers, one of my oldest, oldest podcasting friends with Hello. us. This is so exciting. <laughs> this is such yeah, a I'm thrill very happy for me. to be here. Uh, Nathaniel Rogers of the Film Experience, uh, referred to by me uh, way back before I actually knew you as favorite Oscar blogger and still the source of many of much of what I know about award season. So uh, thank you for for coming to talk to me and Joanna. Can I tell my my Nathaniel Rogers origin story? Yeah, I don't know it. That I wrote in when I was like years before I ever started writing for the website for any website. I wrote in on a contest uh, that he was holding on his blog, and I won, and I got and he mailed me a DVD. So I'm a long time Nathaniel fan. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm so glad that uh, we all go back so far and then we get to do an Oscar flashback together, going back almost to the very beginning of the Academy. We're going to talk about It Happened One Night, which I am just delighted to get to experience with all of you again. Um, as I said, we're going to hear from Richard about Can, which is underway this week. Um, but first of all, there is some awards news and we have uh, Nathaniel, an Oscar expert and a, um, a foreign language film expert in particular. And before we get to the fun part of talking about all the new Academy members, I wanted to get into the rules change that the that the Golden Globes made last week, basically getting rid of the rule that made it so that Minari and then before that the Farewell couldn't compete as Best Picture because they were in the uh, the foreign language category, which they still call foreign language, even though the Oscars have changed international feature. It's confusing and complicated. Um, Joanna, before we were recording, you were calling that too little too late, which is basically true. Like the Hollywood foreign <laughs> press is enmeshed in this just like much bigger controversy than what happened yeah. with Minari. Um, but Nathaniel, I want to talk to you because you've thought a lot about like the, the foreign language and international categories at the Oscars and how complicated they are and how hard it is to get it right. Do you think this is going to do, if should the Golden Globes ever happen again, is this a valuable fix or is this just not even getting close to the real problem? Well, I think with with them, they have the, they don't even have the same list as the Oscars to begin with for their foreign yeah. language um, competition. So it's whatever's submitted to them. So they could technically have like multiple nominees from the same country which is against the rules of the Oscars. Mm -hmm. So they were they're working from a somewhat different list to begin with. The one way that they're that they're better and I know it's horrible to say that the globes are better at anything. <laughs> <laughs> but the one the one thing that they do do that the academy doesn't is, you know, because they don't have that one country rule, if something has been released that year and it's like a big hit in the country, it is eligible for that category as long as it's submitted. Whereas with the Oscar, its home country has to choose it. So sometimes you'll have controversies at the Oscars, like Spain not choosing Almodovar's talk to her. Mm -hmm. Whereas that could, you know, even though they didn't choose it, it could still be submitted to the Globes. I think yeah. the same thing happened with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, right? Recently? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and people you know, get upset that those films get, don't get nominated. Then you have to be like, well, actually, their country <laughs> made that choice for them. Yeah. Yeah. So in in that one way, it, the Globes are better. I'm not saying they're better in their choices that they make, but in that circumvents one of the problems of this very complicated category. But they have their own issues. Like, you know, with the Oscars, you can't, you also couldn't submit. It's a slightly different problem. Minari could not have been submitted for that category because it's an American film. 
So if an American film is in a different language, it still is not allowed in that category. So they have sort of the opposite rule <laughs> as, as the Globes did, essentially. Is there one, like, if you were in charge of everything, like, would you pick one or the other to lean on, like, the, as a better way to do this? Um, not necessarily. Like, I, I, I think the one country rule is good because it's already so Eurocentric. Mm. And when people say they should abolish that rule, I was like, you do realize we'd have, like, three nominees from France every year. <laughs> so in that, in that way, it helps to be more inclusive, but, you know, it comes with its own problems. Like, France has such a big film industry that they can have two great movies. Like, you know, Portrait of a Lady should not have gotten shafted that year. I like I like your point, though. The, it reminds me of the conversation we had around eliminating gender from the acting categories. And then the concern is that would those categories then become overwhelmingly male just because, you know, that's the way that people think about things. And so this idea of, like... If we got rid of the one country rule, would we just see a lot of French films, which, you know, pluses and minuses there. See, I personally love French films, but I don't need them to have, <laughs> but I don't need, I've been a, you know, a huge into French cinema forever, but I don't really need them to dominate that category any more than they already do. Right, exactly. Um, we've talked about the Golden Globes a ton on here, but we haven't talked with you about it. Um, you know, do you have a sense that like, is there coming back for them at this point? Like the, the headlines keep getting worse and worse for them. Uh, the Critics' Choice Awards keep looking like they're going to try to take that spot. W what is your sense of where the Golden Globes are going to land after all this? I confess that I have no idea. I was so <laughs> I was so surprised with the speed which with which you know everybody turned on them mm -hmm. because you know Hollywood has put up with a lot from them. So why? Was this just an opportunity and Hollywood wanted to get rid of them already? Like, it's like it's a little hard to understand the motivations for everybody turning instantly, including like the, the thing that really bothered me about it was the studios proclaiming, oh, no, they're so gross. Like, we don't support them. And, and the studios are the one who have sort of lifted them up all the time. Yeah. And the, and the big PR firms and all those people saying they're boycotting. And I'm like, but you're the ones who kept them in power. Yeah, it's the, you know, they were waiting for one stone to, to lift, right? So that everyone yeah. else could have cover and go for it. I mean, it's like, it is similar to what happened with Harvey Weinstein, honestly. Like, you have an, or, like, have something that's, like, less powerful than it used to be, and then it's, like, become safe to turn on it. But it, And they've built up so many years of being annoyed with them that everyone is eager to turn all at the same time. But it was so fast. Yeah, so in that way, I, I don't. You know, I don't know. Um, but, <laughs> I thought you'd come but, solve this for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's where the, I guess, the Oscars help themselves by having such a massive membership, which is maybe a transition into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which was the new class of Academy members. Um, as we were saying before we recorded, there's it's hard to say much about it because, A, you don't know if these people will accept their invitations, as Ryan Coogler uh, mm. proved recently, that some of them turn it down. But let's just assume that most of them will, because I would imagine that most of them will. Um, who are you guys excited about to be new Academy voters? Uh, Jonathan Majors. <laughs> Staying on brand, obviously. The year of Jonathan Majors rages on. Um, there's a lot. I mean, Stephen Yin, obviously. Like, we, we were talking about him so much. Um, I'm so excited to see him on there. Yeah, this, I mean, is it's great, to, this is a great class. It's a great safe class. to say that if uh, if you were nominated last year and you weren't already a member, you are now. Yeah. Because there are a lot of a lot of recent nominees are on this list. Yeah. How about I you, was most... I was most excited about um, Nicole Bahari because I've enjoyed her for since Shame um, with uh, Michael Fassbender. Um, I've like really been into her, and I think she's a great actress. And she gave one of last year's best performances with Miss Juneteenth, so I was really happy to see her. You guys have shouted out two for two people who've been on this podcast, so uh, keep going. Who else? What other little gold men veterans are now in the Academy so we can... We can shout them out. Uh, Kingsley Benadire, also Kingsley Benadire, Janet Jackson. Not yet, but someday soon. Um, new Academy member and hopefully a little Goldman guest someday. What you know, like there's a lot of you know as as they increasingly try to include younger members, not just like older white members, etc. Um, you know, you get these really exciting new classes. Then you get someone who comes in and you're like, wait just now like Nathan Lane <laughs> you're like mm -hmm. just now Nathan Lane okay I guess sure yeah yeah Stephen Root great yeah and you it makes you wonder like what was the thing that tipped Stephen Root over into membership like when 
what recent performance really did the trick. I'd love to know. Yeah, and you see that with directors too. Like I, I was really excited to see Jonathan Glazer on the list who did Under mm-hmm. the Skin, which I was such a huge fan of. But I was like, why now? <laughs> yeah. Like he's not even prolific, so he hasn't done anything since yeah. <laughs> Under the Skin, really. Yeah. Well, and they really, you know, in the with announcing the new members, they release all these stats about like how many different countries the people come from and kind of the demographics of it. And they're really still touting the diverse the diversity initiatives and just the international aspect of it, I think, is something that increases more and more. Like we talk a lot about how the director's branch is skewing really international and how you get like a Thomas Vinterberg surprise in there. But at seeing more and more people from different countries added, you really do start wondering like how the overall taste of the Academy is just going to shift in that direction or shift in ways that we can't predict because these people are from all over the place and have such different taste. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Uh, so now we're going to jump across the Atlantic just for a little bit. I caught up earlier as we record this uh, with Richard Lawson, who is over at Cannes, who has uh, assembled all of his COVID paperwork and is taking various rapid tests. And there's apparently an online ticketing system that's not working well. But yet he is in France to see some great movies. Uh, so he's going to tell us what he's seen so far at Cannes and what the mood is there on the croissette. Who's going to pronounce it right for me? Joanna, you speak French, right? Croissette. Perfect. <laughs> Let's hear from Richard. Well, I'm on the line now with Richard, all the way from France. Um, it's still kind of surreal to talk to you from France because you made it, uh, unbelievably. Uh, how are you doing, Richard? Uh, bonsoir. Uh, it is uh, <laughs> surreal to be here, to be honest. I mean, it was my first time at an airport in almost a year and a half. Uh, my first time out of the country in almost two years. I think the last time was Toronto 2019. Wow. Uh, so there's like a personal aspect to how strange this is. Uh, and then there's a professional one, which is like the big kind of existential question of should there be a big international film festival right now? You know, mm-hmm. we, we all want to be back, but uh, our, you know, is sort of a decent vaccination rate around the world or well, bad around the world, but decent in France and the United States enough to uh, to merit us being here. And I don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah, maybe in 10 days uh, we will know the answer. Um, I mean, we're recording this very early on in in the festival, and you'll be listening to this. Uh, there will only be a handful of films that have premiered. Um, so before we get into the logistics of how the festival works and kind of the vibe of being there, there are two movies that, um, as people hear this, will have premiered that you have seen. And I think the one that I'm dying to hear about, and maybe everyone is, especially after Marion Cotillard dropped some interesting details about it, yeah. uh, is Annette. Um, yeah. Big Leos Carax, Marion Cotillard, Adam Driver musical with some um, some sex scenes, I'm guessing? There, yeah, there's one, you know, which Marion Cotillard, I guess, mentions in the press notes interview, uh, If people don't know what that is. When you get a press package for a movie, there's usually an interview that's been done with like creatives that's been done by someone in the PR team or whatever, uh, who, uh, you know, so just as supplemental material, to, you know, and, and one of the quotes that was pulled out of that material was that Marion Cotillard said that Adam Driver will, I don't know what, go down in history as the first person to do a, sing a mu- song in a musical while performing oral sex on someone. I like go down which, in history as the uh, choice of metaphor there. Oh yeah. Unintentional, <laughs> but I'll take it. 
Yeah, you know, I think that uh, that is definitely a scene in there, and it's 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 pretty wild. Uh, the movie's interesting. I mean, you know, Annette, since it was first announced, uh, people have been really excited by, I think, or excited about, rather. Um, you know, Holy Motors, which was a 2012 uh, Leos Carax film, like, was is really, really beloved um, for both its kind of beauty, but also its strangeness. Um, you know, he's a, he's an, a really idiosyncratic, at times maybe alienating filmmaker. Um, and so the possibility, and it's interesting, there's a kind of a, a narrative about this happening throughout the festival, but in Carax's case, like, of he's doing an English language film with big stars. Um, and there are big stars in Holy Motors, but like, and uh, some of his other films, but you know, this is a big American star and Adam Driver. It, it feels a bit more maybe commercial, maybe mainstream. Uh, we have a couple, few other filmmakers doing that uh, at the festival. But this being the opening night film, I think there's so much anticipation for it. And I don't know what to think of it, to be mm. honest. I mean, it has those standout moments that are like, oh, like worth talking about, etc. But as a whole, I think it maybe is just a problem of it didn't, it wasn't what I expected. I th- I was sort of maybe naively expecting a traditional musical with really defined songs, numbers, mm-hmm. you know. This is more sort of sing-speaky, Philip Glassy kind of opera. There's very little spoken dialogue in the film. Hmm. And the music, which is written by Sparks, the brother duo, you know, that's just had an Edgar Wright documentary yeah. about them. Um, it's a little, it's not atonal exactly. There's melody, but it, it's it's kind of deliberately not catchy, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's still very much a strange Leos Carax movie. It just has the packaging, maybe, of something more mainstream. Yeah, so you imagine people who love Adam Driver from Star Wars maybe clicking on this on Amazon Prime, which is releasing it later this year, and uh, not liking what they, what they see. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the reception here, it can feels, you know, mixed as expected. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the broader world, like, you know, it's it that it's going to be a question of marketing. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, will not get a good cinema score, let's say, because <laughs> people, you know, people are expecting something more accessible and the film sort of refuses to be that. I mean, you, you have the oral sex scene, you have the fact that the, the baby... Uh, the titular baby uh, who sings big concerts the world you know around the world uh, is quote unquote played by a sort of CGI marionette puppet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you, it it it's you have seen certain scenes that are shot very much in the real world, others that are very soundstagey and kind of abstract almost. Like it's a real mix of things, which is true to Carax as a filmmaker, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It just, I think that somewhere in that equation, you know, the Amazon sort of imprimatur on it, like, it might have been like, well, here's uh, one for the masses. And it's really kind of defiantly, in an almost admirable way or a frustrating way, depending on your perspective. It's really not that. I'm going to say this having not seen Holy Motors since 2012, but I feel like maybe you and I were both thinking of, like, there's the Kylie Minogue scene where she's, like, in an old department store and it's very, like, Umbrella's a Cherbourg. Like, that is that what we were kind of thinking the whole movie would be and it's not? Right, those kind of big pop sensationalist but still artistic bursts of song and expression. And and Carax has said in recent interviews that, like, he kind of doesn't know how he's going to make a movie that isn't sort of sung after this because, like, this is, like, he feels like sort of the purest way to express what he wants to express. And, you know, he's talked about um, his, his younger life when he wanted to be a musician, but it kind of, the talent eluded him for music, mm-hmm. you know? So I think he, he's really locking into a personal interest here. And, and yes, that aesthetic of Kylie Minogue, like, I think that's kind of what people thought they were going to get. And there are moments in, in Annette when that's true, but it is mostly the kind of in, nearly impenetrable esoteric kind of thing that I used to see at like the American repertory theater, like, like very experimental Robert Woodruff sort of Philip Glass kind of stuff. Like it's, it's, it's an odd duck, Annette. Um, well, you're seeing that, a, a divisive film by a uh, international filmmaker sounds like you're a can. Well, exactly. You know, and I think it's it's a sort of funny, ballsy move of the festival to open the festival with that movie because, it yeah, people are going to flock to it with one expectation and then are going to, you know, I'm just thinking of all the sort of, sort of well-to-do stuff, you know, sitting in the audience watching the... <laughs> The kind of lingus scene, you know. <laughs> uh, it's it, it is a funny way to for the festival to have announced that they were back. 
Well, th- it's actually coming out uh, in August, so it'll be mm-hmm. it'll be uh, in theaters on August sixth in the U.S. and then on Amazon Prime a few weeks later. So it's not. I mean, a lot of times things will premiere at Cannes. Even Parasite, you know, premiered at Cannes in May and didn't open in theaters till October or so. So it's a shorter wait than usual for the rest of us to see uh, what you guys are all getting all uh, thinky about. Um, but you've seen something else, too, that will have premiered um, this week or that will premiere this week. Um, so tell me about that one. Yeah, so the uh, another standout so far um, has been uh, The Souvenir Part 2, mm-hmm. uh, which is Joanna Hogg, uh, the British filmmaker, her follow-up to, well, The Souvenir Part 1, um, which was, a, you know, one of my favorite movies of, I think it was 2019, a lovely kind of memoir piece uh, that's, you know, a sort of very, very loosely fictionalized version of... Uh, Hogg's own experience as a young woman at film school and dating someone who was mired in drug addiction, uh, a very gentle, aesthetically, you know, assured, beautiful film um, that I was, you know, when they announced that there were pretty soon after the film premiered, I think it was at Sundance, they announced that there was going to be a sequel, which you really never, I mean, it's very rare to hear that there's going to be a sequel to a sort of, you know, uh, determinedly uh, art house film. Yeah, definitely not a movie that you watch where you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to see the cinematic universe they're establishing here. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, she just, Hogg has more to say about, about that period in her life, you know, and about, and it's really not just about her, it's about what it means you know, it's portrait of the artist as a young person, you know, mm-hmm. it's what it means to sort of find your creative voice while the world and your own life experiences outside of your craft are are both um, distracting you from your art, but also informing your art. Um, and I think anyone who's tried to make something in any form can kind of relate to what Hogg is talking about. And I think how she talks about it, her filmmaking is so interesting. It's very, you know, it's sort of vignette It's sort of elusive about what's about who, what, who characters are. You kind of just have to lean close and figure out what, what this world is. And in that leaning, you sort of topple into it. Like it, it, it becomes really immersive mm. um, to the extent that you really sort of feel like, you know, this character, Julie, uh, who's played uh, by Honor Swinton Byrne, who's Tilda's daughter, and Tilda's also in the movie. It's one of Tilda's, I think, four movies at the festival this year. Um, and I think that part two, for my taste, maybe gets a little too navel-gazy at points compared to... Because the, the first one is it feels more universal, I guess, and the second one is very much more specifically about Hogg's life, even though there is all that stuff you can extrapolate about making art. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still really powerful and i mean the filmmaking is gorgeous and you know i i i I left the experience of seeing it sort of floating and i decided not to listen to a podcast on my walk but to listen to music and i sort Mm. of you know i felt sort of inspired i guess I, i i wanted to make something or at least feel that feeling prolonged so i think that that is a movie uh doing its job well yeah any uh any stand up performances in there well, I mean, Tilda Swinton is not in it much, but she's terrific. I mean, she's playing this, you know, sort of wealthy country woman who, uh, you know, is very kind with her daughter. Not in a not in a sort of stereotypically stern British way, but has that sort of, you know, not stiff upper lip, but like medium soft upper lip. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and she's just so good at calibrating that. It's it. You know, we, we've seen Tilda Swinton be kind of wild and weird, and, and this is a much more buttoned up role. But she 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 kind of inhabits it just as well. Honor Swinton Byrne, you know, is a is really persuasive in this role. I mean, it's the only thing I've seen her in, so I'll, I'll be curious to see her do other things. And a couple other actors pop up. Um, you know, Harris Dickinson from Beach Rats and a number of other things is briefly in it. Joe Alwyn of uh, Billy Lynn's half, Long Halftime Walk and The Favorite um, is also in there. And they're both really and effective in their And writing credits scenes. on uh, Evermore and uh, well, Taylor yeah, Swift yeah. albums. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and you know, Honor Swinton-Byrne is really the, the focus of the film and these characters, these other performances kind of come and go. But they all work really well together to create this very credible world. Um, it, it really feels like, you know, I, I don't know if Joanna Hogg is just really good at remembering people and moments in her life. I, I can't remember what happened last week, but or yeah, if she's seriously. just good at making pretending she can. Um, but it all feels incredibly textured and real. And um, it just makes for uh, a film watching experience that um, while she's not doing a ton of fancy, you know, inventive camera work or anything so, you know, noticeable, the whole of it really feels like very singular and like she's kind of inventing 
or at least, you know, is one of the few practitioners of a particular kind of film grammar. Mm hmm. Um, well, next week we'll talk again and we'll have a lot more titles to talk about, including The French Dispatch, which I think is probably the biggest of the American movies that will be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially because it was supposed to be at the festival last year. So it yeah. has that kind of like, all right, we got to finally see this thing. Yeah. Yeah. But so uh, to, to close us out, just I mean, how has the experience of actually being there been? Like you say, whether or not we should have the festival is an open question. I know everyone's spitting into tubes. You had to, like, bring a pound of paperwork with you to get across the border. Uh, now that you're actually there, how does it feel? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I say that I'm going to have a dispatch from France about the French dispatch. But, Katie, I don't know if I will, because the process of getting into the movies is so far kind of a disaster uh, so they set up so basically in normal years you get you line up with your badge and different colored badges get in different lines and certain badges get in into the theater earlier it's a frustrating process but it it just is the can process and this year they've decided because and very understandably they want to reduce crowding and lines so in so in addition to having your badge you also have to go onto a website and Two days out, so every day you you try to get tickets for a movie two days hence, you know, um, you have to go at 7 a.m. on this website and try to reserve your tickets, both for press performances and for public performances. Mm -hmm. And the problem is the website doesn't work, or it hasn't so far. Wow. <laughs> so What a I month have for, had... for malfunctioning websites, like the New York Board of Elections, now can, what's next? Yeah, yeah exactly. So I've had uh, a bit of a freak out being like, I'm, I flew all the way here, I got all my documentation, I'm spitting into tubes, and like, am I even going to get to see that many movies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I will, I ha you know, I'm getting into some things, but it's, um, I'm just worried that it, with a movie like France Dispatch, the, the website's going to crash again, because everyone's going to be trying to get on at 7 a.m. to to get their tickets. Um, but, you know, I have to have faith in the process. I'm very fortunate to be here. I'll say the other thing that's, you know, it, it is interesting that the festival, you know, is normally in May, which is before the high season for French Riviera travel begins. And I don't know that they're going to have a high season in a, in a traditional way this year mm -hmm. uh, because of COVID and everything. And, you know, especially because British tourists are not really able to be here and they make up a huge volume of people visiting this part of the world. Yeah. Um, so it does feel, the festival feels smaller and yet I'm seeing Cannes, the town, as more of that kind of vacation. Like, I don't see it, you know, tons of people with badges and tuxedos running around. It's more just people like regular suits. tourists. Yeah. And so it's hard to kind of get a distinct sense of how the festival mood is beyond stress about ticketing processes and all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think that I'll have more to say probably next week about, like, whether this was all some grand folly or if it kind of worked out in the end. I mean, yeah. Can does have a good way of sort of, like, you know, having a rough start and then kind of eking out a win. Uh, I'm well, you'll be going to some parties. Like, you'll be, like, rubbing yeah. elbows with other film people for the first time in so long. Like, that's, that has to count for something. Yeah, I mean, the party scene is interesting because, um, you know, that's some of my mandate to be here is to sort of to some in some extent, like figure, you know, kind of cover the nightlife to, you know, just to get a sense of what what the whole festival experience is. And I have been trying to do that. But like, it's more like, oh, we're having a discreet little reception after this premiere. It's not mm -hmm. like come to this beach club and have come to a huge blowout party with a DJ yeah. and all, you know, so so everything just feels a little more muted, which is you know, definitely the best course of action. We're, you know, we're still very much in the COVID moment. So like, I, I understand the caution and, and it is appreciated ultimately. But like, I would say thus far, this feels like a kind of hotter <laughs> half can, <laughs> you know, like it's, it, 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 the selection of movies is great. The holistic experience is different in a way. I, I mean, I, I do feel in some ways like this is my first time at this festival, even though it's technically my seventh. Yeah, I mean, that might have happened just for, um, you know, returning well, after such a long time, you know, learning how to walk you, down the street. Yeah. Did you know that people speak French here? Like, I heard I, about it. This I is what's always scared me I, yeah. off, man. <laughs> I am having a weird, like, you know, I live in New York City. I hear different languages all the time. But I, look, you know, I don't have to rely on my communication skills outside of English very often. And it, just having gone, you know, a long time without a full two years since being in France, like, I am really just stumbling. <laughs> you know, I have said I have said uh, gracias to people. I have said <laughs> buongiorno. You know, I'm just really throwing out everything. And they, you know, understandably and uh, totally justifiably don't seem to appreciate it. <laughs> Do they know how hard you work to get there, though? Like you really uh, you jump through those hurdles to get out of this dang country. <gasps> 
Yeah, you know, I don't know because, you know, the, the, the French government uh, current and I think the EU government, uh, it doesn't currently does not uh, recognize U.S. vaccination certification because all we have is these, you know, we have our state. I have my Excelsior pass, which is a QR code on my phone. And then we have these actual physical CDC cards. But the U has they have QR codes for everything, you know, so you can show your vaccination QR code or whatever. And and it's recognized everywhere. And uh, they I, I have had a number of occasions at the festival where, you know, a very nice French person is like, well, do you have the QR code? And I'm like, no, I'm from America. <laughs> we don't we don't do that. <laughs> Well, you're from the, you're from the state in America that does do it. They just don't acknowledge your your greatness, which is a classic New York thing, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So, but you know, I I don't mean to criticize the organization of the festival. They have a huge burden of uh, they're, they're they're trying to be as careful as possible. It's and it was inevitable that there would be some hiccups in the sort of like bratty journalist. I can't. It's hard for me to get into this movie kind of way. <laughs> um. Well, we will hear much more of that from you next week. Uh, in the meantime, you do have a a can curtain raiser that's going to be up on vf.com with kind of yeah. the titles to look out for, so people can use it as a guide of which uh, what yeah. buzz to watch for. Yeah. It's just twelve films on that list um but there's there's a lot more beyond that um and i'll have i'll have coverage i'll have some reviews but also probably more some like kind of more broad coverage to come in the next uh almost two weeks so uh Man. yeah stay you'll tuned. be uh, you'll be fluent in french by the time this is over i can't wait to hear it one hopes Sybil. <laughs> I, I i know every waiter i've spoken to thus far hopes that too <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now for what I consider the main event. We have an Oscar flashback. Uh, we are looking back at one of the uh, the biggest Oscar winners of all time and one of the earliest ones. It happened one night, Frank Capra's 1934 comedy. Nathaniel, we asked you to join us and didn't really let you pick this. We just kind of threw the title out and we're like, you should talk about this. And you said, sure. Um, <laughs> but I imagine that you've got, as, a, as an Oscar lover and as a lover of, of old classic movies and actresses, I imagine you have a deep well of affection for It Happened One Night. So what, what's your story with this film? Um, my story with this film is I loved it at first sight, of course, um, but also when I first saw it, I was curious about the sort of what movies created the romantic comedy genre. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up, like Annie Hall was a little before my time, but people always looked at that as like a seminal romantic comedy. But if you trace it back, it all really goes back to It Happened One Night. So I think there's been just like a few movies that have become like the text for romantic comedies. And that's it's definitely the main foundation of of any idea of what a romantic comedy is. And, you know, it's easy to see why, because so many movies have borrowed from it. But and yet it remains so fresh. Mm -hmm. It's just it just sparkles. It's so great. <laughs> it, I just love it. It's kind of amazing how there, and I think there's things we talked about in this show where you're like, okay, well, I see how like a lot of films cribbed from this. So like, it feels overly familiar, but back then it really felt original, but like, you don't have that problem with this movie because no. it feels, it still is so lively and so funny and surprising, even as you recognize the beats of the story you've seen a hundred times. I don't, I don't really know why other than that is just like wonderfully written and acted. Um, maybe you guys have more insight on how it's maintained that for almost a century. I have a couple thoughts about this. Nathaniel rightly mentioned romantic comedy, but also specifically, I think this is often cited as the first screwball comedy, a screwball mm -hmm. being like a subgenre romantic comedy that only lasted for a couple decades. I mean, you could call things screwball comedies now, but they don't really fulfill the prompt uh, of, of what they were then. But but I think one thing I, w I, I was I took this as an opportunity to watch a lot of very smart people talk about it happen one night. And one thing that someone pointed out, and I forget who I'm cribbing from and I apologize, was that without the so the forbidden social mores, the like conventions of the time, which meant that this contact that they're constantly in has this sort of like frisson of excitement because it's forbidden because they're two unmarried people. In fact, she's married to someone else um, on the road together. Without that, then these other imitations, and there's some great imitations like French Kiss, a movie I love, uh, less so what Forces of Nature, I think, with Sandra oh, Bullock. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, they can't have quite that same tension because it isn't like absolutely forbidden that these two people be in such close contact with each other. Do you know what I mean? Maybe oh, yeah. do you agree, disagree? What do you think? Well, I think to your point, one of the interesting things about the movie is it came out in 1934, which was the year that the Hayes Code started being enforced. So, you know, movies before 34 are called pre-code and they're generally much racier. Um, if you look at 
early 30s movie and i think what's interesting about this movie is it came out just it came out just a couple months before they really got strict about the code so you can see that one of the i think one of the reasons it feels so modern is it's not quite as as repressed about its sexuality as movies in the late in the second half of the 30s like i don't think it's exactly considered a pre-code film but it kind of is from what I was trying to dig into this, because off air, Katie and our friend Dave were disagreeing about this. Katie called this a Hays Code movie, and our friend Dave said absolutely not. What I was able to find, and people might disagree, but apparently, like, it's right before, as you say, anything, right before they get strict about it. But because Capra knew that was coming, he made it so that it would be code friendly enough that you know, there wouldn't be riots against it in the theater. So they could have (laughs) technically gotten away with a lot more, but he was like, but I know this is coming. So I'm going to walls of Jericho are going up sort of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you, when you see it from that perspective, you think of things like, um, like the character shapely, uh, how name just like, just like how he likes him. Um, he just has a couple lines where you're like, all right, I see how that is like something they might not have been able to get get away with a couple months later. Um, but then the walls of Jericho, like you said, Joanna are just such a perfect symbol for, for what the the code is trying to establish of of building that wall between people. Yeah, and it's one of those great examples of of the writing of a movie working in like the subversions, understanding what it wants to say and understanding how to subvert whatever constructs are preventing you from actually saying that. Yeah. So it becomes like this great joke and this great through line in the movie because when it first comes up, the first time that they share a room together, it feels like just a natural like funny like screwball comedy gag Mm -hmm. but then the way it it dovetails at the end is just like perfect arc for the movie Mm -hmm. yeah i love it and the fact that you never see them after they get back together in the end like the you see her run away (laughs) from the wedding and you do not lay eyes on either character again it's so perfect and it but it doesn't feel unsatisfying because you've seen the walls of jericho so much like that it lands Mm -hmm. you don't need to see the characters kiss it's incredible there's no yeah there's no kiss between them in the movie which is wild Something else, uh, something that I think they definitely would not have gotten away with um, a couple months later was Clark Gable stripping his shirt off. Oh, yeah. That that would not have been allowed. Um, And something I read was that, you know, he's doing this bit where he's telling her how people get undressed in order to sort of make her uncomfortable. And uh, and I think they tried it with more layers and it was just wasn't funny. So (laughs) they took layers away and did it that way. And uh, so Clark Gable took his undershirt off. Uh, to make like the bit funnier but because he just took his shirt off and there was no undershirt uh legend is that sales of undershirts went down after this film came out people are yeah. like i want to be i want to be like clark who needs an undershirt <laughs> Love yeah. that. i mean he was the king of hollywood that was his nickname and so everybody wanted to be like him i heard that that he did this film because he was loaned out from his home studio as a reaction to him, like carousing too much. And he was loaned out as punishment. Cause that's something they used to do. Right. It's like punish mm-hmm. you by loaning you out to another studio. Did you guys, have you guys I saw that? something along those? Lines. I don't know if it was about carousing, but just like, cause he was at MGM, I think. And he got loaned out to Columbia. Yeah. Uh, so he like something he had done, he had made Louis B. Mayer mad one way or another and had to get loaned out, which is just, it's amazing just to, to think of the way that these enormous stars uh, had their careers managed in that way back then. Right. And Columbia wasn't like the height of the studios at at that time. You know what I mean? Like it was he was loaned out to a lesser studio being Columbia. Right. Yeah. And this movie was made for super cheap and they both hated making it or at least (laughs) for the most part hated making it. That's like a really fun thing about the early Oscars, too, before everything became like a formula for Oscars. You see in the first decade, lots of different you know, things happening like a screwball comedy winning, like a screwball, like if, if anyone were to make a screwball comedy now, it would never be, I would probably wouldn't even be nominated. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of interesting political history behind this year at the Oscars. Do you want me to talk about this now? Or I would or love for you to talk about this. Now. Okay. I read this great article. I'm going to shout it out because there's so much good stuff in it. It's called PR and politics at Hollywood's biggest night, colon, the Academy Awards and unionization, 1929 to 1939. Mm. And it's from someone named Monica Sandler's uh, published for UCLA. And um, okay. So a couple things up. So in 1933, so this, this swept at the 1934 Oscars, right? In 1933, the Screen Actors Guild was founded because they were dissatisfied. At the time, 
the Academy was doing all the like brokering between actors and producers and their contracts. And they were dissatisfied with what was going on. FDR, like there was a bunch of like post uh, or current depression sort of salary cuts and stuff like that. And so the actors wanted more control and that's when they founded the Screen Actors Guild, which was like a slow build, but eventually they got enough star power behind them that, that there was a rush to join the Screen Actors Guild and the members of Screen Actors Guilds were encouraged to quit the Academy, which they did en masse. So there was a mass exodus of actors from the Academy um, in 1933. And so then what happened is that a big scandal out of this Oscars is that Betty Davis was not nominated for her performance in Of Human Bondage. This is a big deal. And... (laughs) Let me please let me read this one quote from a photoplay article that said, even my postman lingered the other morning on the doorstep and pushed back his cap from his puckered brow. My son and I have been talking about this Academy passing up Betty Davis. It's a darn outrage. And I think photoplay ought to give him the devil. Um, (laughs) So this is like something everyone was talking about. And um, that's what my man says to me every year. Yeah. When he pushes back his cap from his puckered brow. Every time. (laughs) So, so John, so Joan Blondell, one of Betty Davis colleagues, another actress said, uh, she's quoted the time saying, I suppose there was no chance for any part of the process to be fair because everybody had quit the Academy. But when they left Betty out, we all began taking a closer look and decided, Hey, something's rotten in Beverly Hills. Uh, and so what the Academy decided to do at this point is introduce a write-in option. Like, because this became a huge scandal because, um, Photoplay was writing about it. So like, Everyone was talking about Betty Davis' snub. This is like the biggest snub of, of all time. And so they they allowed a write-in option post-nomination. So the nominees were set, but you could write in for Betty Davis and of Human Bondage or whoever you wanted to, if you wanted to, after the nominations were set. Um, obviously, that didn't impact who won. Like, it, it happened one night, won all these awards, had already been nominated, so no write-in candidate won. But this is a year that the Academy... And, and we've seen this in modern times, the Academy is facing like a popular opinion, public outcry. And so there's a theory that they push their support behind such a like popular friendly film. Like it happened one night, like Nathaniel was saying, like a screwball comedy. This is like the year that they were talking about doing the popular Oscar. Like they, mm-hmm. they like just shoved all these Oscars at it happened one night. One of the biggest films of the year, right? And also this is the year that they gave Shirley Temple like her little um her little Oscar that she got as like a special prize. And so it just mm-hmm. feels like a really like wanting to make sure that they felt relevant and popular after this whole Betty Davis issue. So that's it's amazing a, how there's never anything new. It's just the same stories for a century. Yeah, it, it, in different forms and different costumes. And even the makeup art, the makeup awards that, you know, we always talk about we who love Oscars um, mm-hmm. started right around here too, because Betty Davis had been snubbed. So she won the following year and it for dangerous. And I don't know if you've seen both movies, but she's like a hundred times better in of human bondage than she is in <laughs> dangerous the following year. Um, so it's just like, it's so obviously a prize just because they yeah. snubbed her the year before. Was she the first person to do that? To win win the Oscar for the wrong movie because she'd been snubbed previously? Because, you know, that's what, like, in year eight of the Oscar, she really could be the first. She might. I think you'd really have to go through filmographies, but she's (laughs) definitely the first case where you totally notice, oh, after the scandal of her being snubbed for this performance, everyone thought was genius. Then she wins for a lesser performance. Yeah. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. It happened one night winning, like just the politics behind it are fascinating. And 
you know, this is the thing that I think we talk about all the time is that the Oscars are never separate from politics or culture or society. Like it is all part of the conversation with each other. But it happened when night winning represents just one of my favorite things that the Oscars can do, which is to take something that like people love that is a genuine phenomenon and like and, and marry it with the Oscars. It happens with Titanic. It happens, you know, when Get Out gets nominated, like it doesn't have to be a winner. And just know like when you go back through the historical record, like the Oscars wouldn't be the Oscars if you didn't have like the weird outliers that nobody cares about anymore next to the gigantic hits but when you see something like win the big five win like be a hit be something that no one expected to be a hit and succeed to that extent like that's the even rarer accomplishment of it, it just like you feel like it rings all the bells all at once and makes me so happy that that they did get it right after all that uh storm and drawing to get there can i drop just like a few little post 1934 Oscar trivia on you that Nathaniel yes. probably already knows. <laughs> so after this, Frank Capra gets elected the president because like he's had this big year. And so they're like, okay, you're the president of the Academy. And, but there was ongoing like stress with the Screen Actors Guild with the guilds, uh, you know, cause the Academy was not like working with the guilds. They were very unpopular. Uh, the Screenwriters Guild, all this sort of stuff like that. Uh, so Capra did a couple things. First of all, he massively expanded the publicity department cause they were, facing a lot of bad publicity. Uh, and in 1936, there was going to be a huge planned boycott in 1936. And that's when he introduced the sort of Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, and so this is a quote from Capra's biography. He says, to spur attendance, we counter by persuading the giant of all filmmakers, D.W. Griffith, to come out of his retired oblivion and accept from the Academy a special statuette for his legendary pioneering in films. And so... Uh, then Capra like quit the Academy because he was mad at them. But like that, I was just sort of like, it, it really like it's Wait, how long after did he quit after being president? I think 39. I think he was president for like four years or something like that. 39. Wow. But, um, I'm just impressed by like you go from president to quitting in fury in such a short period of time. <laughs> I mean, but it's just constant. It's it is like these these gambits, these like a uh, lifetime achievement, a uh, small statue for Shirley Temple. Like it's just all sort of it's the same as it ever was. I love it. Yeah, and that, that was, uh, 1936 is when they uh, introduced the uh, supporting categories too. Right. Yeah. And at, and at the time, they were they did that because you know people were you know wanted a way to honor the character actors because you know the stars get all the honors, and so now we've seen that category is almost useless now because now it's always just stars mm-hmm. <laughs> because they just run leads in campaigning there. But it's interesting that they were sort of making it up as they went along. And we see, we've seen so much turmoil in the past like 10 years and so many rule changes, but it's always been that way essentially. And I think that introduction of the supporting categories was a part of them trying to lure the actors back. If the actors were, you know, if the, if the screen actors guild was, responsible for a lot of the boycott talk. So it's just super mm. interesting. And now the actors have so much power. <laughs> they lured them back and now they rule the whole thing. <laughs> to that point, um, something that I thought was really interesting in observation that I read about it happened one night is that this is one of the first times that the lead, there had been some romantic comedy, but not maybe not a romantic comedy, but ro- comedies with romances before. But this was sort of the first time that you really saw the the stars, the leads get to be silly and funny. Usually the character actors, the supporting, you know, the the leads are all dramatic and, and you know, beautiful and all this sort of stuff like that. And then you've got great character actors doing the comedy. But here they let Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable do the comedy. And it's just unusual at the time and delightful still for us to watch, you know. Yeah, when he resumes screaming, quit balling at her, when the, he, the people come back in the room and then both of them just hit that moment of comedy so perfectly, like it's it's transcendent, basically. Oh, and then they start giggling afterwards, too, <laughs> when they fooled the people. And it's just like, it, it's it's always just shocked to me when to hear actors didn't like making something when you feel like watching it, you feel joy. Mm-hmm. And you think, weren't they feeling that on set? Because this movie is so joyful, but maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's all the first half of the movie where she can't stand him. That's the uh, yeah. that's where the, <laughs> that's where the real emotions come into play. I that that play acting scene. There's a lot of like sex scenes that aren't sex scenes, right? In this movie, mm-hmm. like they're rolling around in the hay, literally, and stuff like that. But but that acting scene that they do because he like undresses her and like pulls her knees apart and like musses mm-hmm. up her hair and it's all like for this role that she's about to do but it's them sort of like working together like building it's like i'm like this is the sex scene right here yeah. like you know this is it yeah it's amazing yeah 
And can we, I, I know people wanted Betty Davis to win that year, but can we just acknowledge that this is a really great performance from Claudette Colbert? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. She's and incredible. Because she totally plays into all those uh, that have since become tropes about like the romantic comedy girl who's too, too fussy and mm-hmm. too set in her ways. And she has to be sort of thawed, but by like passionate love you know yeah which became such a trope and you can see it in like when harry met sally you know like meg ryan is so fussy at the start of that movie and she has to like sort of learn to let loose Mm -hmm. um you know maybe that's a sexist trope that started way back then but the way that she manages to go from being like this very spoiled very sort of angry character Mm-hmm. to this like just fun loving like okay like, i'm gonna fly by the seat of my pants and just have an adventure is it it really plays as they say like the movie just plays perfectly that relationship between her and her dad that like, they set her up in that first scene where she like flips a table over and she's so furious and he hits her and they're both kind of like upset by it as soon as that happens and then her dad becomes kind of like the moral push at the end of the movie to get her to leave the wedding like it's a you know that's such a tiny role but like it's so important like it's a I guess it's that Capra thing of being like everyone's a person who is not just like there to be like a foil to the action I mean you've got like you know the guys on the bus who are you know a little bit thinner characters but I just really like that like that's a human relationship not just like the spoiled girl and her mean dad who's making her get married to the auto gyro pilot (laughs) Uh, which I do you guys know if an auto gyro would have seemed really goofy in 1934 because it seems like it's supposed to it seems so goofy now um but it, it's, it's such a such a perfectly dumb invention and word to be at the center of that wedding yeah it feels like mark zuckerberg wakeboarding <laughs> <laughs> it feels like, well it's like you know but the on. 30s the 30s were obsessed with aviation though like it, yeah. it's in so many movies like um but he new, but he's supposed to be invention but he's also supposed to be such a like you know, stuffed shirt, nobody who would who would drive some kind of like silly invention like that, like a like a wakeboard. <laughs> I, I I like what you said about like her. Yeah. The the spoiled brat, the like Princess Vespa from Spaceballs sort of like uh, <laughs> vibe from her. But what I like about her is that she's never she in her presumptions like, oh, they'll just hold the bus for me. It reads more ignorant than it does imperious. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like she's never she doesn't start from a place where she is like very mean to anyone except Clark Gable and you kind of like that but like you know when when she gets along with the women in the in the line for the shower eventually or when she like gives money to a kid whose mom's faints on the bus and stuff like that like that that doesn't seem like dramatic difference of her she's just becoming more aware you know she doesn't go from mean to kind she goes from completely ignorant and sheltered to just aware of her surroundings you know that's a really great point like they're they both have like rough edges and and this is something that's so fun about their romantic interplay is that you can see them both like softening for the and it because it, it, it goes both ways in the movies like he becomes much more tender because he starts off it's sort of this like really sort of mean to her mm-hmm. but yeah. he's really looking out for her like the scene where he makes her the bed out of hay which is another sex scene that's not a sex scene mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, that he's just really like looking out for her all the time. Yeah. Well, in the end, then he lets loose about, uh, you know, where he wants to go and to escape all of it. Like, uh, he works in media, guys, and he just wants to get out and have an island. And none of us can relate to <gasps> Your to that. life, Katie, we <laughs> haven't talked about your life in so long. <laughs> Clark dream. Gable's your life. He had it all planned out. Um, yeah, and I just, there are these, uh, I, I was I was watching this short little video of Cameron Crowe talking about this film because he loves it so much, and he was talking about what he calls regarding moments, which are just these non-dialogue moments where we get to watch one of them watch the other one who doesn't know they're being watched, mm-hmm. and we get to see what their face looks like when they look at them. And from early on, like, you know, Clark Gable sneaks little smiles at her and stuff like that in a way that belies the gruff exterior, and it's just, you just are rooting for it to happen right from the jump you know when she falls asleep on him on the bus really early on and he's just like like get you a man who will look at you like clark gable looking at claudette colbert yes. sleeping on his shoulder on a bus because man that'll <laughs> sail a thousand ships so good so good something else that i read and i and i didn't double check it so i don't know if this is true um but i think it's true that the advent of sound sound had made 
only recently made such an advance that the camera is allowed to be much freer. They're not locked into a studio or not locked into one place where you can't move the camera because it'll make too much sound on the capturing mm-hmm. of it. And so this is like an early example of a of a like free and liberated camera. And I think that's another reason why it feels so playful um, to audiences at the time and to us as well, maybe. Yeah, that bus moves up. It moves up and down that bus really nicely to mm-hmm. uh, to get all of those people. One of the things to to see like how stiff movies were when sound first came up. It's really interesting to watch uh, the second best picture winner the broadway melody because you want that to be like a buoyant sort of jumping around movie because it's the first musical to win and it's just really like the camera's locked in place at all uh-huh. times yeah um, because you know they were just they were figuring out sound still well i always think of the uh, camera in the glass box and singing in the rain that they have to like yeah. run out of every time they want to exactly sing <laughs> exactly <laughs> everything i know about sound in movies i learned from singing in the rain. True. More, more or less yes <laughs> The best history lesson ever put on film. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, the other thing, I, I was curious what you guys think of, I think Sullivan Tra- Sullivan's Travels is like a much more um, overt version of this. But what do you think of the way in which Capra is trying to lace in sort of the class distinctions and, and what is going on for the less moneyed Americans at this time? Like, it's a pretty light touch, but how does it land for you guys throughout the film? I think, I mean, it seems mostly lovely to me. Like the, you know, the little boy whose mom passes out on the bus, like definitely feels like the most overt moment. But the Man on the Flying Trapeze song, just the idea of like how people can be united under circumstances like that through travel, like no bus is really going to do that, but it just feels like just the right enough flight of fancy. And I really love the part at the end where he's driving back to the motel and um, singing and like the the guys on the train, like wave to him and he's like, hi! And he's like, they're like all sharing in this moment of liberation. There's just this like, I don't know that there's a commentary in that moment, but just including it at all on film, like that's part of the historical documentation and the idea of like transcending these class boundaries that everyone's kind of united in the, in the human spirit in that moment yeah i mean the class stuff is so all over 30s movies because you know coming out of the depression and and all of that so i i love the light touch here but i also think it goes to what you were talking about joanna about about her becoming more aware so it's like it's it's about another movie about rich people which so many movies in the 30s especially screwball comedies are about rich people and yet it's not mean spirited. It's like recognizing her privilege and 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 being kind about her realizing, yeah. That, yeah, oh, that's not how the world works, and that it can make her a kinder person in the process to yeah. to have that education. It's a great movie, guys. It's so good. Oh, <laughs> last thing I learned in this not last thing, but it's the last thing I'll burden you with. Probably the last thing I learned in this blew my mind. Uh, did you know that Bugs Bunny is modeled on Clark Gable in this film? No, I didn't. Like Bugs Bunny, What's Up Doc, and like chewing on the carrot is a reference to the scene where Clark Gable is like chewing on the carrot explaining how to hitchhike. I know your face right now, Athena, like that was my face when I found that out. And I looked it up and it's very evocative carrot eating. So I honestly, this shouldn't surprise me. It's true. It's and, and that's, I think, where we got the myth that Bunnies eat a lot of carrots because they don't necessarily. It's just a Clark Gable joke. Because, you know, Mary Melodies was doing that all the time. There's so many, like, 1930s film jokes that I barely get in, yeah, in old yeah. Looney Tunes. And I, uh, yeah, Bugs Bunny's doing Clark Gable and it happened one night. Which yeah. was wild, wild. So. Yeah, my mind is so blown right now. <laughs> but even, even that is such a, how perfect these two performances are. Because even the way they eat carrots... <laughs> Oh it says so much about their characters. The way she finally starts nibbling on the carrot is the mm-hmm. cutest thing, and it's so mm-hmm. funny in context. Yeah. Did people not eat? Did rich people not eat raw carrots back then? I wonder. Like she was so grossed out by the concept of it. I just I wonder if they it was only like boiled and poached and butter carrots for, for the wealthy. Yeah. They needed to know. Good, good hearty snack. Um, I have a question to close it out. And because you both know more about 30s movies than I do, if someone sees this movie, which I think is like it is the screwball comedy that stands alone, it's most likely someone to see. What, what should you see next? Like what if, if you love this, what's another 30s movie to seek out? Oh, there's so many. But I have two that come to mind immediately. I, I also mean, had two. OK, I want to hear my, my favorite screwball comedy um, other than this, um, I don't want to place them against each other because they're both perfect, is The Awful Truth uh, with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. 
And in that one, it's more of like a divorce comedy. Like they're already married and they're divorcing and maybe getting back together, you know? So, um, and it's just so funny. I think it's funnier than this one. It's not necessarily a better movie, but I think it's funnier scene for scene. And I think it's like, as screwball comedies go, it's perfect. That, that's the first thing I always recommend to people with screwballs. I would go, I mean, Philadelphia Story counts, right? Yeah. So I, it's I, 40s, right? But still. Oh, are we? No, I know, 30s? I know, no, okay. no, no, no. I said 30s, but I was going to say, yes, of course it counts. My decade descriptor was unnecessarily restrictive. Um, yeah. Philadelphia Story is like right up there with It Happened One Night is one of my favorite films of all time. My Man Godfrey for the like exactly sort of class distinction, screwball comedy sort of thing. Um, and then the Palm Beach story, if you want a little bit more Claudette Colbert, that's similarly sort of the comedy plot of remarriage with Joel McRae. Uh, it's a Preston Sturges film, but it's uh, it's a great thing where like they're desperately in love, but they have no money. So she's like, we should get divorced and marry rich people. So like you could be successful and I can have some money too and stuff like that. But like they're desperately in love with each other. So it's this whole sort of what should you do versus, you know, and the fact that once again, like this idea of divorce being in these movies sometimes feels like a little, a little modern and titillating. So that's from 1942, the Palm Beach story. Um, I was going to throw out one, which isn't really a screwball comedy, but uh, I was astonished to see he was nominated for best picture the same year, which is the thin man, um, mm. which is, you know, great married couple detectives uh, and, you know, kind of more of a mystery, but that has a lot of comedy elements to it. I kind of saw it for the first time, not super long ago, and it's completely charming. Um, and, you know, the, I think the rest of that 1934 Best Picture lineup was, like, not a ton of memorable stuff. Like, there's a version of Cleopatra. Nathaniel, you would know much more about it than I do. But The Thin Man is uh, is another great one from that same year. Yeah, The Thin Man's really fun. Um, it's But it's also, like, you know, what we were sort of mentioned earlier, but we didn't go too deep into, is that they, they were a lot less, um, you know, they were still inventing themselves, the Academy. So you don't see as much of, like, stuffy prestige films. Right. There are some in this lineup from 1934. Mm. Um, but they hadn't really settled on prestige is what we go for. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you see really, like, fun, silly movies because, like, The Gay Divorcee is also in this in yes. this lineup, which is the Astaire, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and it's very silly. Yes. And there's another, there's a couple, there's actually a few comedies in here. Um, so it's, and it's like, it's hard to imagine now, like three or four comedies in one Best Picture lineup. Yeah. Well, you would think looking at it, like, from a distance, I would have guessed Cleopatra might win. But Cecil B. DeMille's not even nominated. There's only three uh, directors nominated. Uh, and it's wild. It's wild seeing no supporting actors. So yeah. weird. Well, that's an interesting thing that about It Happened One Night is that really, like, it's one of these movies that's really, really focused on just two people. Yeah. Like, almost everybody else is a cameo. Mm-hmm. Like, the dad gets, like, two scenes, maybe? Yeah. Right. Um, Shapely gets maybe a couple three. scenes. The bus driver who just says, oh, yeah. The yeah. Edi- the, <laughs> the editor, the publisher, the newspaper. Yeah. 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 He's good, though. The editor, he really gets his moment. Uh as like, yeah. Clark Gable kind of makes his transition at the end. Really quickly, I have to go back to the comedy recommendations and say, as journalists, I don't think we, we are legally obliged to say uh, His Girl Friday in yeah. there as well. So. Yep. We've given everyone a great black and white romantic comedy stable to go to. So I hope I like that Nathaniel's is like a little like I, I feel like I could go for the obvious one. I like that his is like a little bit more off the beaten path. It's a good Which one? The awful truth? Yeah, the awful truth. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's just wreck. so good. And the cutest dog. I was about ever. to say, there's a uh, a strong dog in that movie, I believe. <laughs> yes. It's the same dog I believe, I hope I'm not wrong for a podcast, but I believe it's the same dog as in um the thin man. I was thinking Asta? that like the the, the <laughs> yeah. uggy of his time. Yeah. And yeah, so he had a great year, that dog. <laughs> a great couple of years as the, the fact, toast of Hollywood. The fact that they didn't give him a dog Oscar, I guess, is a surprise now, <laughs> knowing what they were throwing at the wall at that point. Oh, we should throw out one Oscar trivia thing we haven't mentioned, but people probably yeah. know this, but it's still interesting about it happened one night. It was the very first movie to win the top five, the big five, and only two movies since have ever won the big five. So it's Which still are... a super rare achievement. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And it doesn't, so when we say big five, picture, director, actor, actor, screenplay, Yep. it doesn't seem like, 
that doesn't seem like it should be hard because like there's so many movies that sweep a ton of Oscar categories. Yeah. But it's that like something about like two equally matched leads, a man and a woman, is just hard to recreate. Because Titanic won so many, but not for Kate and Leo. Nope. And Leo. not screenplay. Mm. Leo didn't even get nominated. Some <laughs> my Betty Davis sting. <laughs> oh my god! Did you talk to your mailman about it? Did you write in, did you write in a photo play, Katie? <laughs> my mailman is the one who got me into it in the first place. Hey, I would say Leo DiCaprio is probably the closest we've come to mailmen complaining about somebody not winning an Oscar. That's probably true. That's I, think probably that's right. true. I think that's right. The mailmen are the reason the Revenant happened at all. <laughs> That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. Uh, we'll be uh, reacting to the Emmy nominations, which are out next week. Who can believe it? So um, stay tuned for some very immediate reactions to those. Nathaniel, I'll let you go first. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people uh, read your work anywhere? I'm at thefilmexperience.net uh, with myself and several other writers. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Nathaniel R. Uh, you can find me and Joanna and Richard's Dispatches from Cannes at uh, VanityFair.com. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. Uh, you can also find, you can also text with us, sign up at subtext, uh, join subtext.com slash Little Gold Men. Uh, this week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs and this week's award for the real reason why Richard is out this week. It goes to Joanna Robinson. Carousing too much. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mao. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>